Thank you very much. Um, and I would just like to uh, clarify that, yes, I'm from Adelaide at the moment um, for the next couple of months, and then I'm actually moving closer to this end of the world, to Newcastle, to take up an associate professorship at the University of Newcastle. So if anyone comes looking for me in Adelaide, I won't be there for very much longer. Um, I'm really pleased to come and talk at this conference about exercise in stroke, and I'm going to try and cover what is a very huge topic in, in perhaps more of an overview way to think about exercise across the spectrum and stroke care across the spectrum. And also, of course, keeping in mind when we're talking about people who've had a stroke, that's a very heterogeneous population from people with very mild or, or, or very little to almost no disability to those with much more severe physical limitations. Why it's important is we know that people after stroke have very marked reduction in physical activity that's persistent. They have very low levels of, of fitness, um, typically around half of age match peers. And it's even in people with, with very minimal disability. We know that this lack of or this uh, loss of fitness happens very early after stroke and it doesn't tend to improve over time. And we have all the secondary effects as well around loss of muscle mass, increased fat mass and so on that have flow on effects. And I'm just preaching to the converted here. I'm very conscious of that, about why um, exercise training is important. And we know that lack of adequate physical activity is actually the second highest population attributable risk factor for stroke. And the people who've had a stroke are obviously more likely to have a second stroke. And these are the people that most need to have that um, increase in physical activity. I'm actually going to take us back across the physical activity spectrum. We've been talking a lot about the MVPA end of the spectrum, that, that level of exercise of at least moderate intensity. But we can think about physical activity across the spectrum where in any one point in the day we're either sedentary, and all you guys out there right now are sedentary, sitting down doing nothing, we're doing light intensity physical activity, and depending on how much I sort of wander around up here at the lectern, you could classify what I'm doing as light intensity physical activity or we're doing MVPA. So we've got a spectrum of, of physical activity that we're all sitting along at any point in time. But this is what actually happens across the day if we want to squeeze out those photos. So most of, in terms of waking hours, let's forget about sleep for the moment. During waking hours, most of us are sedentary for about 60% of the time, a bit over a third of the time in light intensity and very little time in MVPA. So this data comes from work that was done out of the Ausdiab study across Australia that's accelerometry derived data around how typical Australian adults spend their day. So the point here is we've focused a lot and quite rightly so on that very small slice of the pie in terms of people's activity across the day and the benefits that it derives and those benefits are very powerful, there's no doubt. There is also this very large section of the day that people are either sedentary or in light intensity activity. And is there some benefit around um, looking at adjusting that? So replacing some of the... So it's important to note also that light intensity physical activity and sedentary time are almost perfectly correlated because there's so little of the other in one's day. So if we're doing more light intensity, then we are reducing sedentary time. Thinking about spectrum still, we need to think about stroke in terms of the stroke care pathway as well. So we have the very hyperacute and acute setting where people are in hospital in the first few days and, and week or so after stroke. For a lot of people go on to um, receive rehabilitation, often in a hospital setting or at home. That's more around improving function and task-specific training. And then we have the long-term care of our stroke survivors in the community as well. 
So I'm going back to that light intensity and sitting time, and we've all heard these sort of things in the media around our increasing knowledge about sedentary time in particular. So sitting is the new smoking is one of the headlines um, and thinking about how much our sitting time reduces our life expectancy. So these sort of stats are, you know, take with a truckload of salt, not just a pinch of salt, but they're designed to kind of get us thinking about the fact that how much we're sitting each day also has an effect on our health. So this comes from a burgeoning amount of research that's come out fairly recently really around the evidence linking high sitting time to poor health and death. And it comes from cross-sectional and prospective observational studies around the world um, that have found that people who have high amounts of sitting time have a higher risk of um, cardiovascular disease mortality and morbidity in particular, but also all-cause mortality. And that this high sitting time and, and the impact of it seems to be independent of the amount of time people spend in that MVPA. So there seems to be an independent effect of prolonged um, sitting time. And it's the prolonged uninterrupted sitting time that's particularly bad. So I'm all going to make you give me a standing ovation after this uh, to, to break up your sitting time because you've all been sitting there for what is defined as a prolonged sitting period. So what's happening in stroke then? So we've talked about what's, what we shouldn't, what shouldn't happen. Let's have a look at what is happening. And in the acute setting, we know that, um, I won't go into the details about how the, this data is collected, but in the acute settings, we know from a range of studies now that people, are, people after stroke are spending 87% of their day, and this is nine to five days, this is not 24 hours, 87% of the time between nine to five, lying in bed or, um, and mostly lying in bed, a little bit of sitting out of bed. Of course, these are sick people who've just had a stroke, so perhaps not surprising to some degree, but of course then they go on to rehab where it's all about getting them up and walking and getting them independently mobile again, so they're going to be more active. Well, no, they're not, actually. So this data was collected as a, a part of an RCT that I did across a range of uh, rehab centres and found that the difference between acute and rehab in terms of what stroke survivors are doing across the day is that they're not lying in bed as much, but they're sitting out of bed next to their bed in their rooms most of the day. So there's a very high level of inactivity that goes on in rehab centres as well. And a couple of, of studies have then looked at what does this look like in terms of bouts of sitting time if we're taking that paradigm. Uh, and this particular work showed that almost 30% of stroke patients spent 90% of their day sitting and the average length of a sitting time bout was 38 minutes over half the day... Over, Half the day was spent in sitting bouts of over 30 minutes on prolonged sitting. And almost half in sitting bouts of over an hour. So it's not surprising that to get that volume of sitting time and sedentary time across the day, a lot of it's happening in very prolonged bouts. So that's sedentary time. What about light intensity activity and why it's important in, in, um, in rehab? And it's not just about it reducing sitting time. In the context of stroke rehab, that light intensity activity is also about motor practice and improving function. And we know from systematic reviews, and this is the most recently updated one out last year, that more task practice improves recovery of function for people after stroke. So the more that people are spending time practicing what they need to get better at, the better they will get. And if we're talking about people regaining their independence of walking, that means more time practicing being on your feet and walking, or at least standing. 
So I want a very briefly um, quick overview of a study that we've fairly recently completed that aimed to look at how we can increase the amount of task practice people do in rehab to accelerate their recovery of walking um, and also hope to increase the amount of, of activity they were doing across the day. So it was a three-armed RCT that looked at two different models of providing more physiotherapy time to people in rehab settings. And it was a, clinic, a pragmatic clinical trial and the two models of increased physio that we looked at was extending the physiotherapy service to include weekends, so they got extra therapy on Saturdays and Sundays. The other model was providing more therapy time five days a week by the model of um, group therapy, or, or often known as circuit class therapy. And we're primarily interested, as I said, in improving mobility, um, walking ability. So here's our interventions again. Usual care, five days a week, one-to-one -one with a therapist. Usual care over seven days or group circuit class therapy, which we aim to get to 90-minute sessions of physio in a day. So quite a lot more than what usual care was. So how did we go? We actually did very well in terms of increasing therapy time. So participants in the seven-day arm of the trial got an extra three hours of therapy within a four-week period, and those who got the group circuit classes got an extra 22 hours of physiotherapy in a four-week period, so a lot more time with a therapist. We were really pleased about that, with no increases in staffing for the group circuit class. And economics I could talk about another time if we, if we want to. But we failed abysmally in terms of increasing activity across the day. So then when we looked at what people were doing between nine and five, and this is only from a small sample of people, we found that they did very, were very seldom seen to be standing and walking across the day. And this was even worse when we looked at weekends and inside and outside of therapy. So the message, the take home message is that, yes, we can get people in therapy sessions for longer, but we can't get them more active outside of therapy sessions. And very, very little physical activity happens on the wards and outside of those um, defined therapy sessions. So this is something we're doing more work into now to look at what some of those drivers might be. Not surprising then, considering we did so poorly on increasing activity overall, our outcomes were completely equivalent across, across the groups in terms of recovery of walking. So I'm going to move up to that other end of the spectrum now in terms of physical activity and talk about that more MVPA end and aerobic exercise training, but still situating in the acute and subacute setting. And there is some um, evidence coming out that the aerobic exercise in this setting in terms of increasing motor function may have a positive effect on uh, neuroplasticity as well and in terms of improving those connections and improving people's ability to move. One of the potential mechanisms is increase in BDNF factor expression in the brain. There's some genetic variations in the, the people who tend to get that effect, and there's a lot more we need to understand about that. But the idea, perhaps, is that if we can give an, a short aerobic exercise bout, we may be priming our motor cortex to then respond better to motor training and increase our response to rehabilitation. But we certainly there's a lot more to understand in that story. There have been a range of studies that have looked at the effect of aerobic exercise in that earlier phases after stroke and all have found quite positive benefits in terms of physical fitness training. So we know that we can get the fitness effects if we provide this aerobic exercise, but we know that it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen very much in rehab hospitals. We're not getting to the implementation end of this spectrum at all. 
So moving down the, the um, stroke care spectrum now to thinking about people later after stroke, and these data come from studies that we did with people later after stroke living in the community where we had them wearing a range of accelerometers. This is, comes from the active power data, but we kitted them up with three different um, uh, activity monitors. And we, had, we looked at stroke compared to age match controls. And so you can see here again, this, this is waking hours. We took out sleep time that people are spending the vast majority of their day sitting and a lot of that time sitting in long bouts and that's far higher for people with stroke than controls and very little time in MVPA and you can see that almost that, that very, very thin sliver of time spent in MVPA for people with, with stroke and that in fact came from just a small handful. Um, I can't remember the top of my head but, but about 30%, only came from about 30% of the sample did any MVPA at all in that time. So these are people who find it very difficult to move. So what about this other end of the spectrum then for people later after stroke and the sedentary time? Work from David Dunstan's lab in particular out of Melbourne has looked at the effects of introducing breaks in sitting time in terms of move, moving, moving breaks and his original protocol was looking at two minute walking on the treadmill every 20 minutes to break up prolonged sitting and what effect that might have on, on health. And they've done quite a suite of studies down there now and have found these sort of breaking up sitting time paradigms have shown improvements in glucose and insulin metabolism, blood pressure outcomes and plasma fibrinogen as well. And they found similar results when sitting time has been broken up with simple resistance exercises, weight bearing, but, but um, more resistance exercises as well. So these studies so far with that, within that group have been done with populations such as overweight and, overweight, overweight and obese adults and people with type 2 diabetes. We haven't looked at that, nobody's looked at this in stroke yet and that's something that we're starting to build um, in conjunction with David's group to start to look at in, in a population of stroke where their risk factors may be even higher, what sort of breaking up sitting time paradigms might we need to see effect? Do people just need to stand up? Do they need to walk over ground at a slow speed? Do they need to walk at, at a higher speed? There's a lot further, a lot more to understand in that story. Moving back up the uh, physical activity spectrum to MVPA again for people later after stroke, we know that this is effective, is, is the bottom line. I keep getting to the, the punchline quickly, but uh, a systematic review published by a um, colleague of mine a couple of years ago showed that in, from 28 studies with people a range of post, with participants that were a range of time frame post stroke, although most of them were later after stroke found that fitness training consistently leads to benefits in, in fitness levels. But it's important to note these people come from very, very low fitness levels. I was interested to see it's almost the same statistic from PAD in terms of the, the low level of cardiovascular fitness they're coming from. But we can show some improvement in that fitness level with, with training. And that's also been demonstrated in the Cochrane review as well. That fitness training that includes walking does improve walking ability. Resistance training improves strength. Both of them can improve fitness levels that it's safe, the adverse event monitoring um, seems to indicate that there, there's very, very little adverse events. But there's not a lot of data around the effect of this on mortality or on disability after stroke. But modelling that data, there is potential for us to reduce that risk of recurrent stroke by about 25% if we can encourage people to do more of this exercise. But it's that adherent side of things that is really uh, tricky. So we... 
and then the theme of what I've been talking about is that we know that exercise is really powerful for people after stroke, but we know very few people actually take it up and are able to do it. So we do need to understand a lot more around what, they, what those barriers and motivators for exercise are. And there has been a little bit of work around this that suggests that, not surprisingly, exercise preferences vary for people after stroke. They vary for all of us. I don't like cycling. I can handle a little bit of, bit of jogging, um, and I don't like swimming. So it's going to be the same for, pe for people who've had a stroke. Some people say they prefer structured group activities that have some peer support. Others prefer to have an exercise program that could be incorporated in their daily routine. Some prefer exercises to be demonstrated and like that professional support as well. Interestingly, in this particular, um, this was from a qualitative study, uh, not sure if that was a qualitative study or not, um, said that men are quite motivated about the, want, the need to return to driving or are motivated to be able to return to drive, to, to be able to drive. So perhaps that can be a hook in for clients as well in terms of trying to get them to be more physically active, improve their function, if you can tag it into a goal about return to driving. Barriers for exercise seem to be different for people who've had a stroke compared to, the, to people who haven't had a stroke if you ask them what's stopping them exercise. They often talk about pain. They often talk about fatigue, and there was a, a forum on post-stroke fatigue um, at the Hunter Valley yesterday that I couldn't get to, unfortunately. That was, but it, it, it is the next big thing that we really need to understand a lot more about in stroke as well. Most stroke survivors complain about post-stroke fatigue, and it's something we don't know enough about. And there's a potential, of course, for exercise to improve that fatigue, but uh, we need more research in, in that area. So people after stroke don't talk about lack of time or lack of motivation. But at the same time, over a third of them didn't believe that exercise would help them. So they're not going to report lack of motivation if they don't even know that they should be doing it to help them. So certainly there's an education aspect as well. Of course, transport, cost of accessing um, ex formal exercise programs and physical access for people with mobility difficulties are obvious and key barriers as well. So my key messages I hope I've managed to get across is in the context of stroke early and later, Exercise we should be thinking about across the spectrum and not just at the huffing and puffing end. That light intensity exercise and not sitting, so replacing sedentary time with light intensity exercise may be just as important, but we need to explore that further. Stroke survivors are both sedentary, as in they are sitting too much and, and, or lying too much, and they're also very inactive in that they're not accumulating enough MVPA in their days. So both at the hospital setting and in the longer term, we need to look to find ways to encourage stroke survivors to replace their sitting time with light intensity activity and increase their aerobic exercise and understand more what that means at the physiological level as well and what, what dose of, of increased exercise and activity we need to see benefit. Thank you. Are there any questions for Coralie? Hi Coralie, um, I'm Nadia. I'm just asking, when you talk about later parts in stroke, how late are you talking and how long before we can see benefits for patients? Is there a ceiling effect, so to speak? Um, so first of all, when, when we're talking, typically the studies that look at people later after stroke, say at least six months post-stroke, but generally those studies then include people up to several years. In terms of benefit, we can see benefit from aerobic exercise at any time point. 
So the studies that have been done in the, in the more acute phase and even in the first couple of weeks show, show benefit as well. It's just very hard to, to do it in, the, in that phase. Um, Coralie, I was just wondering, a lot of the data you were showing and the research you were talking about was in the acute and subacute mm. uh, sort of timeframes. I was wondering if there was anything that you have or any comments you could make about anything in the more post-acute phase once people leave hospital, because these days people are spending shorter and shorter periods in hospital after a stroke. So. Yeah, so um, this is for people later after stroke. So we, we do know that people later are, are not very active and we do have a lot of the, most of the evidence actually around the benefit of aerobic training and, um, and, and um, light intensity training comes from people later after stroke, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, no, there is. And in fact, most of the, again, most of the studies that originally looked at the concept of group circuit class training involve people later after stroke. So we did it with, there's a Cochrane review that the um, most recent update was, tw was 2010. We're currently updating it at the moment. And the, most of the studies that have looked at circuit class therapy uh, is later. So that involves getting groups of stroke survivors into an exercise class um, you know, two to four times a week in group settings and doing that task-specific training, uh, and we see, and we do see that that shows um, benefit in their in their walking ability later. Does that answer your question? Good. Thank you. That was lovely. Um, I just had a question more clinically, thinking of people who have a significant hemiparesis after a stroke, because it doesn't seem like you're talking about those people, but mm. if I thought about somebody sitting in a chair who mm. was weak, mm. the thing that would prevent him or her from walking would be strength. Mm. Mm. to get up and Absolutely. then balance, not fall yes. over, and then aerobic capacity is the final thing in that yes. order. And I wonder if you could just talk about that a little bit or your thoughts on that. Yeah, so perhaps I didn't, um, I sort of skimmed over things a, a fair amount, but the, 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 the stuff that I was talking about with people in hospital does include those people who aren't able to walk. So the, trial, the circuit trial that we did had people in it that at a minimum only had to be able to sit independently. We included people that couldn't even stand to start with. Um, in that setting, yes, there is. You have to be able to get up and move yourself. To to um, so I'll start again. Your level of disability absolutely impacts on how much you can get up and move around. And if you can't do it yourself, then you're relying on somebody else to come and help you. Um, and but I think. Um, so for, for, that, for that reason, with our later studies after stroke, we have been targeting to start with people who can at least get up and move on their own, so that we are asking them to make the choice to get up and move more often. But in their studies in the, in the rehab setting, we also need to look at models of care so that we are providing the assistance that's required to help these people get up and move. Well, I think about giving them the capacity. Yes. That's right, and, and that getting up and moving more often and increasing how much time they're spending with a therapist and how much therapy they're giving is about then trying to give them more training to address those impairments, including strength, um, to be able to then recover and, and do it more on their own. But I think if we just focus on the therapy area and, and giving that strength training, we're missing all that stuff that's happening outside of that time. And if we can give more assistance just to enable them to get up and move a bit more, then we're going to be helping them get that strength back as well. One last question before morning tea. 
Thanks, Coralie. You've, you've probably touched on this, but I guess I'm, I'm just struggling with um, the benefit from their point of view, mm. and so studies mm. actually measuring that. So mm. these people are um, fatigued, um, in pain, um, various levels of disability, um, and so then to get them to participate, participate in um, these sort, sorts of activities, um, I think we have to measure outcomes that are of interest to them more yeah. and, and I'm just interested in that sort of research because mm. I can see all the barriers and just telling them that they've got better fitness um, yeah. when it's, there's not data on mortality or disability, that kind of thing, mm. And, mm. and they walk better. Mm. I can see some of the motivators but I, I, th I think the research needs to measure those other things I'm just interested in, in that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I agree, and I think that's part of the reason why I became interested in that other end of the spectrum in terms of reducing sedentary time, because we spend so much time saying to our stroke survivors, you need to get up and do exercise because it's good for you, and they, but they don't see that, no, and, and they can't do it either, and there's all that fatigue and pain and fear, and so then they sit all day. If there is some benefit for them for getting up a little bit more often during the day, that's something that's a bit more achievable, then that's something that I think we need to understand more about whether that's a message we should be giving people. But yes, it needs to be about for what benefit for them. So yes, we absolutely need to do more about that and I'm looking to do some more qualitative studies in that area to understand um, what, the, what the effect of doing more might be and, and what the motivators for doing more might be. And is it around improving their function so they can get back to more of their meaningful activities of daily living? Is it about mental health as well and feeling more useful? Is it about being less bored because I've got more things to do? Exactly, exactly. Depression is a very key thing as well. Mm. Thanks, Carly. You might wrap it up there. Mm. So if you'd like to thank all our presenters from this morning.